I wrote to you an epistle, not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or the idolaters, for then must we needs go out of the world. But now, mark it, I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from you among yourselves that wicked person. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell. I'm after your hearts, not your heads, is a refrain often heard by college students in Dr. Mitchell's Bible classes. In his own words, his goal was to help you fall in love with the Savior, and his teachings always tended to fill your mind with the Lord Jesus Christ. In his day, there were no tape recorders, so he and his organist had to be at the station five evenings a week. He was heard live every weekday on radio stations in the Northwest. The name of our study, The Unchanging Word, highlights the fact that God's Word has not changed. What God reveals in His written Word was true in the past, is still true today, and will be true tomorrow. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary. In John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, saying, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. In our study today, the Apostle Paul needed to correct a misunderstanding concerning relationships inside and outside the church. When it comes to the church, the church needed to deal with the moral problem within, while God deals with those outside the church. Dr. Mitchell begins with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Good day, friends, and we're so happy to again have the privilege of just talking to you about the things of God. We're studying together the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church. And in the first four chapters, we've had a contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. I do not want to go back over it except to point out what Paul is doing. Here is a church, this Corinthian church, which was following the philosophies of men, the teachings of men. Instead of them coming out from the world and living for God, the world had gotten into the Corinthian church, and they were boasting about what they knew and what they didn't know. And so he declares that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And he gives himself and Apollos and Peter as illustrations that it doesn't make a difference whether it's Paul or Peter or Apollos. They were just servants under one master, and God had given them different gifts, just like today. 
Uh, the trouble is we want the other man's gift, or we become jealous of what some other one's doing. When God has made us different to anybody else, the moment you and I put our trust in the Savior, we became a member of the body of Christ. We were joined to the Savior. And you remember that our Lord is all that we need. In the second chapter, we found that uh, things of God are not known by the, through the avenue of the eye or the ear or the reason or the mind. Spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. Spiritual realities are made known to us by the Spirit of God, and He is the one who searches the deep things of God. And if you, if you love the Savior, the Spirit of God is here to do just that thing, to reveal to your heart and mind the things of an omnipotent, eternal God. What a marvelous thing. And then in chapter 4, he, he declares that, that they were stewards of the mysteries of God to reveal to the world things that man can't know by research. And Paul said that that which is, re, which, which is desired or wanted of a steward is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the job God gives us to do, whatever that job may be. It may be I'm talking to some Christians who become discouraged because they don't do or can't do what somebody else does. Remember, each one of us are indi individually responsible to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever he has put you, whatever gift he's given to you, it's to be used for his glory. We are responsible to our master, not to anybody else. And then he gives himself and Apollos as illustrations of how to walk before God in a world that's immoral and corrupt. In fact, he could say in chapter 4 that the apostles were chosen to be, uh, to be on the stage, to be a spectacle to angels, to the world, to men. Did you ever stop to think that as you go through that test of yours, sorrow, affliction, disappointments, discouragement, that God may be using you to teach angels something of his wonderful grace, of his wonderful power? Do you mean to tell me, sir, that angels who, when, who are excelling strength can learn from little old me? Yes. Yes, they know nothing of the grace of God. They know nothing of the tests and trials through which you and I go. And hence, they've never experienced God in his power. They've never experienced that wonderful peace that passeth all understanding. They're sinless. They obey his bidding. But friend, they know nothing of the grace of God. And wherever you are, God has put you there for a distinct purpose, possibly to teach angelic beings or to teach the world a lesson or to teach men a lesson. It's what you have in chapter 4. Now, when we come to chapters 5 to 6, we're dealing with discipline in the church. He's dealing now with the question of morals. And to get the background of chapters 5 and 6, you must again remember that the Corinthian church was living in a city that was known for its licentiousness, for its immorality, for its moral corruption. You remember it was at Corinth where they worshipped Venus. 
and a, a thousand virgins each year were chosen. The most beautiful girls they could find they were chosen to serve a year in the temple of Venus as temple prostitutes. The philosophers of the day did not look upon what we call sin as sin, uh, immorality, uh, carnal defilements. Uh, these, these were nothing to them. It wasn't sin. They were made that way. Just like we have today, we have a permissive society where adultery and fornication is not even frowned upon anymore. And this had slipped over into the church. And so having come out of that sort of a life and transformed by the power of God, instead of being occupied with the Savior who would redeem them and cleanse them, were puffed up with their knowledge, with their philosophies, and with their permissiveness. So when we come to chapter 5, we have where immorality is rebuked. Uh, we took this up in our last lesson, but I'm refreshing your memory on this because it's so vital today. We are living in a world, but we don't belong to the world. And the sad thing is, just as the sins of Corinth had washed over into the church at that time, likewise the sins of our present society have been washed over into the professing church of Christ until sometimes you wonder if so many people are saved. At least they're babes in Christ. They're fighting among themselves. Sin is no longer sin. They, you, they shout about their liberty in Christ, and yet they have no place in their lives for Christ. I say this very frankly. I say it with a heavy heart. As a pastor here for a great many years, dealt with many, many families, I want to tell you, friend, sin is a terrible, terrible thing. Don't play with sin like the Corinthian church did. And they were puffed up. And here was a man who had sexual relations, possibly with his stepmother, such as the, even the Corinthians would, wouldn't do. And, and, and Paul condemns it without reservation. And yet the purpose of discipline is restoration of the man who sins. And the purpose of discipline is for the cleansing of the local church so the Spirit of God can move in our churches for the salvation of souls and the building up of his people. And when you come to that fifth verse, the terrible judgment that Paul but the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, my, what a company to be in, pronounced judgment upon this fellow, not that he might be destroyed, but that he might be restored to fellowship. And when we come to, chat to the second book of Corinthians, we find where this man was really restored back to fellowship. But he also is concerned about the assembly, the local assembly at Corinth were puffed up instead of being greatly filled with sorrow for the sinfulness that had been evident. So he, he's have two things before us then, that restoration of the, of the believer who sins and the purifying of the local church that God may work and move in our midst to the praise of the glory of our Savior, to the salvation of souls and to the building up 
of his own people. I say again, what a need for this today. It just seems in our present 20th century church, discipline has gone out of the window. I say that very candidly. I fear it sadly. And then you have the reason for, for the exhortation that we're joined to Christ who gave himself for us, our Passover. We're to throw away the unle- the, that which is leavened. Leaven is always a sign of sin. But we are to have the, uh, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Which brings us to our present lesson in verses 9 to 13, the call to separation. Let me read it to you. I wrote to you an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters, for then must we needs go out of the world. But now, mark it, I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, Put away from you among yourselves that wicked person. Now, here is a call to separate from evil. You notice what he says. I wrote in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. You see, you and I are living in a world that is not yet redeemed, a world that's full of sin, a world where the average person in the world what you and I would call sin, they don't even call it anything. If they feel that way, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm a free man. I'm going to do what I want to do. I feel like doing this. I'm going to do it. No one's going to stop me. And that's the attitude of the world, whatever the sin is. No thought of, of the other person. And I, I, one could spend a time just illustrating that from our present-day society, but I don't need to do that. Just to pick up any daily newspaper or magazine, you find it. In fact, sin is becoming so uh, so common today that the glorifying the very thing that God hates. The tragedy is it's become evident among God's people. We can't live apart from the world for these who are still in sin. You remember this was on the Lord's heart in John 17 when he prayed to his father in his high priestly prayer, Father, they are in the world, but they're not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, I think we all see that. But now Mark in verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company with a brother, a man who claims to be a Christian. And if he's living that sort of a life, a permissive life, we are not even to have any fellowship with him. We are not to live as the world lives. I am not to conduct my life. A Christian is not supposed to conduct his life according to the society in which he lives. 
We belong to the Savior. We belong to the world. And we ought to conduct our life according to the Word of God. That's why when you come to 119 Psalm, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, but by taking heed according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Or Ephesians chapter 5, 26, that he might cleanse the church by the washing of water by the word, that he might present the church to himself, a holy church, having neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. See, friend, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. I'm not to judge the world. That's God's prerogative. But I certainly, as a believer in Christ, am to judge the believer, and he's to judge me in the assembly. We're going to see that in the next chapter, chapter 6. How easy it is for us to look down upon the world. You say, well, I don't belong to the world. Well, that's correct. We don't belong to the world. We don't belong to the evil one, the prince of this world. That's true. We've been delivered eternally from it. But you and I are still in the world. You can't get away from it, my friend. We're surrounded by sin. Am I to live in sin then? Of course not. I'm to walk before God. And if I find a Christian brother, if I belong to a Christian assembly, and a brother is living in adultery, fornication, drunkenness. I'm to have no fellowship with him. What, for what purpose? To discourage him? No. I must do it in love. I must let him know that he must walk before God. And I have to take that position for the purpose of his restoration to God. This is, that's, that's what you have here in this chapter. The great purpose is restoration to God. Now he says, what have I to do to judge also them that are without? That's not my prerogative, says Paul, to judge the world. That's God's prerogative. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed unto men once to die and after that judgment, but God is the judge. And according to John chapter 5, three times in that passage, our Savior has been given the, the responsibility, if I may put it that way, of judging the world, that God hath committed all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. But those who are within the church, verse 12 says, do you not judge them that are within? God will judge those who are without. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. I again come back to it. The whole purpose of the chastisement is the restoration of the fallen brother so that the church can be usable in the hands of the Spirit of God to reach those who are already in the world. I, I would suggest for your study sometime Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 11. You remember that passage? where we read, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receives. And what is the purpose of chastisement, of discipline? That it may produce the peaceable fruits of holiness and righteousness in the one who was exercised thereby. So I leave that with you for that fifth chapter. May the Lord use it in your own heart and your own life. But may I say to those of you who may not be Christians, 
You've been listening to this discourse on Corinthians 5, where Paul is dealing with sin in the Christian assembly, and how it should be judged by the assembly. As our Lord could say, you remember, about uh, if a brother has something against you, go and talk to him alone. And if, and if he doesn't listen to you, then take somebody else with you. And if you don't listen to them, then bring it before the assembly. And if you won't listen to them, let him be an outcast. Put outside. Treated as one who's not saved for the purpose of restoration. I'd like to get this thing very, very clear in your mind. But now for those of you who have never accepted the Savior, you see, Mr. Mitchell, you're just talking over my head. Well, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But I'm talking to Christians talking about the great yearning for God, for God's people to live godly in Christ Jesus, to show forth something of the praises and the wonders of his love and of his grace to men and women, that by my actions and by my words and by my attitudes to others, I may reveal something of the glorious beauty of Christ himself. In fact, I'm persuaded in my own mind that the average man of the world has a complete wrong conception of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember, he gave himself to redeem men and women out of sin. And if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, I would plead with your heart, as well as with your mind, that you give some thought to this. You must stand before God. He's going to judge those who are without. Remember that. You can say what you will, but every person is going to stand in the presence of God. And we either stand in the presence of God, forgiven and cleansed and covered with the righteousness of Christ, or we're going to stand before God in our sin, in our rebellion. And I want to tell you, my friend, God is holy. God is righteous. God is just, but he's also full of grace and truth. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He could say to dear old Zacchaeus in Luke 19, this day is salvation come to this house because he's a child of Abraham, that is, a child of faith. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh, friend, has ever got a hold of your heart? God spared not his own Son but deliver him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God loved you enough to send his Son, the holy, sinless, righteous Son of God, to this earth, take his place in humanity to bear your sin and my sin. Don't you think, don't you think it'd be a good thing for you to just sit down and think about it? How can I get rid of my sin? You can't get rid of your sin except through Jesus Christ our Lord. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of your acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman can come unto the Father but by me. And how I love that verse when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest of conscience, and then as you walk with him, you have rest of heart. I say this to you, friends. For believers, let us walk before God in a world that has no place for him. To you who are not Christians, may I plead with your heart to accept the Savior today and pass from death 
the life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that takes you in, doesn't it? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. May God grant to you today, put your trust in him. For he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. May God grant to you the joy of receiving Christ as Savior. And those of you who love the Savior, may we live godly in Christ Jesus today. And remember, we are to walk according to the Word of God. May the Lord wonderfully, marvelously bless you today for His wonderful name's sake. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.